Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by state historian emeritus Walt Woodward and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. And I'm Mary Donahue for Connecticut Explored. To mark Connecticut Explored's 20th anniversary, we launched an initiative to find 20 people and projects that are taking us into the future of the study of Connecticut history. We received over 120 nominations from the public and then chose 20 that are Connecticut history game changers. This is our third podcast where we interview one of our Connecticut history game changers, talking to the people making change happen. Today's episode is about the Mary and Eliza Freeman Center for History and Community. The center is restoring and preserving the historic Mary and Eliza Freeman houses in Bridgeport's Little Liberia community, built about 1822, and they're some of the oldest houses built by African Americans in Connecticut. Today, my guests are Maisa Tisdale, President and CEO of the center, and Dr. Sarah Sportman, Connecticut State Archaeologist at the University of Connecticut. So welcome to the podcast. Maisa, tell me a little bit about Little Liberia in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Little Liberia is one of the nation's earliest settlements of free people of color. It was first settled in 1821. And although I can't say it is the earliest, when I listen to the start dates of other settlements, so far ours has been quite, quite early and before the others. The other interesting thing about Bridgeport's Little Liberia, back in the day, during that time in the 19th century, they just called it Liberia, which means free land. And it was settled initially by African American and indigenous people who came to the area from other parts of the state. The major founders, the Freeman sisters and their brother, Joel Freeman, who was, we think, the one who initiated the start of the settlement. Well, they were from Derby. They came to Bridgeport, Connecticut, recognizing the need for free people of color to have a settlement of their own. Because even if you were free in Connecticut, it wasn't the same sorts of freedom. It wasn't freedom in the same way that um, white Americans experienced it. It just meant that you weren't enslaved. So Little Liberia was a settlement that was intended to allow people of color, indigenous and African-Americans to actually prosper economically, to have a safe place to be. It was a sanctuary city and a destination city on the Underground Railroad. So it was a very special place. They funded it by reaching out to networks of free seamen in other parts of the Atlantic, everywhere from the Caribbean to Canada. The indigenous and black men who sailed and who helped settle Little Liberia, they actually made quite a bit of money. Um, It was the only place they could make as much money as as white men. And when they wanted to start this settlement, they reached through that network and asked their colleagues to either come and settle there or invest there or visit, and they did. The women, on the other hand, they took the money that the men brought, brought home and they used it to start businesses. They also took money from the sorts of work that women do, whether it was laundry or cooking, and they started businesses that they themselves ran. So real estate development, making mortgages, they invested their money 
and other kind of businesses on Little Liberia as well. So it became a prosperous place. I think we forget that Bridgeport has this maritime history because we think of Railroad Avenue and all the big factories <laughs> along Railroad Avenue. But it was true that so many Black sailors had their passes, their maritime passes. And I know a lot of researchers have used those. And it's so interesting that uh, Little Liberia is really part of that early maritime history. Now, I read on your website that it had at one point 36 buildings, which is pretty substantial. And I was fascinated with the letter that was published in 1854 by Frederick Douglass in his newspaper. And it just talks in glowing terms about the opportunities for people of color in Bridgeport. How did you find all the, the uh, research materials that you've got on the website? Yeah, well, for that letter in particular, we can thank Dr. Jamila Moore Pugh. And she is a digital um, historian who uh, specializes in placemaking in the, the African diaspora, especially the Black Atlantic world. And so she actually found this letter in archives and we were really fortunate for that. The other archival information on our site was much of it was found by Charles Brilovich, who was the first one to discover the houses, discover Little Liberia, and he did the initial um, research. Charles Brilovich established that the place existed, that this peri-urban Afro-Indigenous settlement actually in, existed and that it was a substantial one. Dr. Jamila Moore Pugh then placed this history in the larger context of the Black Atlantic world. And we learned, we have learned so much about this place and there's so much more to be learned. So that's how we found that letter. And it is an interesting letter because since then we found out a little bit more about the people who were mentioned. We found out that um, Alexander Duncan and also the schoolmaster, they came to Little Liberia and settled there from Weeksville in Brooklyn, which was a later settlement. We know that, that George Francis, we learned from that letter, was the nephew of the Emperor of Haiti. And he, had a, he was a spectac spectacular fighter for freedom and, and abolition and the right to vote, part of the colored convention movement. The men, and I say men because it was men who, had, who participated at this point of time in the colored convention movement, they were very outspoken. So Little Liberia had, was actually in, in a place for abolition. I loved seeing the actual programs from the Connecticut State Colored Conventions and some of the national conventions that really talk about and include names, as you mentioned, like Francis, people that were in Little, living in Little Liberia that are clearly part of the state and national movement for abolition. I think the earliest one I saw on the website was 1841, which is just tremendous. But let's say, let's uh, move on to, to hear about who were Mary and Eliza Freeman. So Mary and Eliza Freeman were the sisters of Joel Freeman, who was one of the founders of the settlement and also the founder of one of the churches there. Mary and Eliza, they lived in Derby. They were of African-American and Pagusset. Um, heritage, and they took care of their parents in Derby 
on their farm until they passed away. So like so many of us women, they were caregivers to their parents. After their parents passed away, Mary went to New York City and found jobs as a chef in hotels, which is kind of surprising that she would actually be a chef in hotels. We don't know which hotels. We're trying to find out. That's something that we don't know yet. Eliza went with her as well. So they worked there. Mary made quite a bit of money as a chef, it would seem. And then she and her sister built houses side by side in 1848 in Little Liberia. That's when the houses were completed. And at that point, Mary must have been one of the first commuters to New York City because uh, for a while she continued going into the city by train to work. She and her sister both took their money. Um, Eliza worked for a widow in Bridgeport. They took the money that they made and they invested it in real estate. So they became really prosperous as real estate entrepreneurs. They built buildings. They actually gave, gave mortgages to other people who wanted to settle there. And the Freeman sisters, along with their brother, Joel, are largely responsible for developing that Southern piece of Main Street in Bridgeport. Now I'm gonna tell you something that is just, I found out this week and it was just shocking and amazing. My mother's family came to Connecticut after the Civil War. And first, they their first appearance is in the Greenwich census. And I knew that they came to Bridgeport pretty early. And I knew also that they had passed through the South End. But I thought that it was at a later time. Well, I'm going through my mom's files for no reason in particular, her genealogy files, because we're always working on the family tree. And I turn over the back of a piece of paper in her handwriting, and she has all of the addresses written down of family members and where they lived in Bridgeport. So the first thing that surprised me, it was really early on. And it was still during a time when Little Liberia existed. So I'm looking through the addresses. I turn the paper over and there's one earlier note. As it turns out, my second great grandparents actually rented from Mary Freeman. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was like, and I, I had no idea. I was shocked. I had no idea that we were um, actually descendants of Little Liberia. You know, we were we made it in right under the wire, but that they actually knew Mary Freeman was astounding. So we were part of that legacy and, and part of her success in, in Bridgeport. So what we know about Mary is that when she passed away, the only Bridgeporter who had more wealth than she was P.T. Barnum. Well, shocking. quite something. <laughs> and if you weren't already the director of the Freeman Center, you, you that piece of information alone about your family would put you there. Um, I want to shift over and ask Sarah a couple of questions. Sarah, I know as the state archaeologist, you you work all over the state, obviously, mm -hmm. into all kinds of locations. And one of the big questions for archaeology is always, what do we think we could actually find? You know, what could we discover and what questions could it answer? For a site like the Freeman site or a site in an urban area that's been built on, had things demolished, been paved over, how do you start that process to figure out whether there'll be any information there? Right, so urban archeology span can be really complex because, you know, particularly if the city is very old, 
um, you can encounter layers and layers of development just built on top of each other. And lots of times over the course of the lifespan, you know, of a city, um, there's been a lot of disturbance where soils have been cut or areas have been filled in to create new land. Um, and a lot of that can make archaeology very complicated. So one of the things that helped to guide the archaeology at the Freeman houses was a ground penetrating radar survey, which enabled us to get kind of a a view of the soil beneath the, the backyard, which is actually covered over in asphalt. But um, once we started actually doing some work at the site, we realized, and when you think about it, it actually makes sense because of all the things that can have it in an urban context, that actually isn't the case here because these really are the first two houses that were on these lots. So we were very fortunate in terms of the um, preservation in the backyards in particular of the soils, there's a layer of asphalt that was laid down at some point in the 20th century over the top of the backyard. And there's some, um, you know, 20th century kind of soil build up and fill, probably from landscaping and things like that, probably to help level the yard. Um, because I think the original landscape would have kind of sloped back away from the houses a bit. But once you got through that, we found relatively normal natural stratigraphy. So the nice thing about this particular site is even though it's in Bridgeport, it's in a big city, the, um, the ground surface is, itself is very undisturbed. So we have a lot of potential for intact deposits related to the actual houses. Now, I'm aware of the Beeman Triangle African-American history site in Middletown, and I know some archaeology has been done, but how rare are these sites in Connecticut? like the Freeman House? Um, I think that it's not so much that the sites themselves are rare. It's just that the, the attention that's been paid to them is kind of newer, maybe in some cases. Um, you know, we certainly have a long history of free people of color in Connecticut, and a lot of historians have focused on that. But archaeologically, I think it's um, somewhat of an untapped resource for learning about the past. You know, currently there's there are a couple of projects going on, including the um, the one that you just mentioned in Middletown. There's also a project in Hebron at the um, Caesar and St. Peter's house, which is another free family of color, um, the early 19th century. But in general, not a lot of work has been done on these sites. And we know that we have the historical research to help um, identify them. Um, I should, excuse me, I don't want to leave anybody out, but I should say also that Central Connecticut State University um, between uh, Warren Perry and Anthony Martin and some of the other staff there, they have also worked on a number of sites of free people of color in the state over the last 20 years or so. We'll be back in a minute with our guest. I'm Kathy Hermes, the new publisher of Connecticut Explored. If you're enjoying our Grading the Nutmeg podcasts, I feel sure you'll love our print magazine with its articles, photo essays, and all the news about upcoming exhibits, history-related events, and historic places to visit. Subscribe now at ctexplored.org. Connecticut Explored is celebrating its 20th anniversary with 20 for 20, Innovation in Connecticut History, a series of articles, podcasts, and public programs that highlight 20 game changers in the field of Connecticut history. The insights and ideas we gather through this five-minute survey will help individuals and organizations who are committed to keeping Connecticut history vibrant and relevant. Thank you for your time. Please find the link to the survey on the show notes for this episode or visit gradingthenutmeg.libson.com. Now back to our Grading the Nutmeg podcast. 
what kind of information will those artifacts tell you about the everyday lives of the people that live in the little Liberia? Well, so in, in a, a site like this with an historic house, what you want to try and do is match the artifacts and the archaeological context from which they are coming to the documentary record. So you can kind of tease out um, the different, you know, people that lived on the site over time and hopefully match artifacts and features to particular occupations. Um, a lot of the material that we found when we did our excavations there dated to the second half of the 19th century, um, certainly with the potential to overlap with the Freeman sisters and some of the boarders that would have lived there at that time. And there's a, a tremendous amount of information about just daily life in these materials. Um, we found a lot of toys, you know, representing children at the site. And there's all kinds of just, you know, basic objects of everyday life, a teapot, tooth powder, you know, bathroom and hygiene things, just the regular stuff that people have, but taken all together and combined with the history, it really shows a picture of what daily life was like at different periods in the past. And I think that's where the archeology span and the history can come together to kind of flesh out those stories and give us a richer history. Maisa, the Freeman site has gotten the attention of the National Trust for Historic Preservation and their initiative to help preserve African-American history sites. What's in the future for the Freeman Center? Okay, so what's made the Freeman Center special, the Freeman Houses special and attracted attention is first of all, that these houses were part of a substantial um, settlement that seems to have been a, a major crossroads in the Black Atlantic. And it wasn't the house, it wasn't a site with just the house of one or two people, say in the woods somewhere. It was part of a settlement that was a planned and designed settlement. The houses were designed by architects and they were part of a larger mission. Some settlements, African-American settlements um, or Afro-Indigenous settlements were actually settled by white missionaries or sea captains, but this one, was completely the work and the deliberate construction of free people of color who had a, a mission of their own. So the Freeman houses, they exist as antebellum Northern site, uh, um, sites on their original foundations and intact. So Mary's house especially, it retains the same materials it was originally built with Eliza's too, but Eliza's interior um, had changes. And also that there are artifacts tied to the site that we're not just dealing with below ground features and also that the history has been done. So in terms of the historical preservation world, these are rare survivals. So what's in our future? Right now, we're still out to bid for our contractors to do the restoration, but fortunately, most of the money that we need for restoration is, well, we have enough to, to have a substantial start. We were a little bit startled because the bids came back high. <laughs> you know, our first budget was done in 2019 before the pandemic, and, you know, I think things have just gone up for everyone who's doing historic preservation, but we're we're out to bid, and this is a huge success. It took a community and their allies, people of all different colors, walks of life, 
to save these houses from demolition. And so the fact that we're about to get started with restoration is an amazing thing. It's the culmination of a little movement. So we're happy about that. Also, we were recently named um, a Connecticut site of conscience and one of the first five sites in the state to receive that designation. So it's possible to look at the story of Little Liberia, its origins, its legacy, and use it as a lens to discuss some of the more difficult and challenging issues that we face as a society today. But what we can do at the site is we can look at these things together. We can talk as a people about making this nation a better place. So we have that going on. We have a vision for the community. And at its center is uh, something called preservation-based equitable development. There are many historic homes um, in the footprint of Little Liberia that also tell the story of immigrants who came and became some of this nation's first factory workers and helped build the might and invention of this nation, not just the state, not just the city. And they're in our footprint. And we would very much like our efforts to aid theirs. And we're also in a position, if we're allowed uh, to have influence on what happens in rebuilding the, the blocks around us, to, to actually pilot um, new technologies that help with uh, building in, in flood zones. So we're, we're really excited. And then we have an award <laughs> that you should tell the world about. We should be modest, but um, you know, we're, we're really happy to be a part of that too. So there are a lot of exciting things going on for the Freeman Center at this time. And if, if everything goes well, we'll be cutting um, ribbons in 2024 and there will be programs that happen on the site from the restored houses. What will the houses themselves be used for? Ah, great question. Okay, so Mary Freeman's house will actually be a house museum. Um, from the very start of our quest to restore the houses, the community made it very clear to us that they wanted to be able to step through Mary's doors and step back in time and see the world as she saw it. So Mary's house is a double house. On one side of the house, she generally rent, rented it out to one of the community ministers. The ministers, it would seem, were part of that whole movement um, that was in part of the colored convention movement and spoke up on those things. So it gives us a chance to interpret that struggle. And then the other uh, side was where Mary lived and we would have a chance to show life as she lived it. So that's what we have for the Mary Freeman House. The Eliza Freeman House that will also be restored is going to be one of the state's first community resilience centers. Little Liberia lies in a floodplain and our organization was part of the resilient Bridgeport efforts to figure out how to, how to attain flood hazard prevention and mitigation in this era of climate change and sea level rise. So we took to heart conversations that we had early on at gatherings of a convention called Keeping History Above Water. And we think that we have ideas and strategies that will work for the Freeman Houses and our neighbors who um, are ordinary everyday people 
who just happen to have bought and live in historic homes. So that'll be the resilience center. And what we'll do there is we'll talk, we'll have environmental um, education, we'll focus on environmental justice, and we'll look at black ecologies and, and indigenous strategies over the years. You know, how have people who lived on the coastline adapted to climate change and to changes in weather and to living in a flood zone. We're for, fortunate to be uh, putting together an exhibit in conjunction with NOAA, and we'll be looking at climate change through the lens of Little Liberia and the experiences there um, over time. And what's really interesting about that is that NOAA traces its own heritage back to um, Thomas Jefferson. It was one of the earliest agencies that had a change of name, but it used to do coastal surveys. When we were talking about doing a film with them, it'll be an interactive film that's part of a permanent exhibit in the Eliza Freeman House. They went through their records and they found a coastal survey from 1850 that actually had the Freeman houses on it. It's like stunning. So to see, to see Mary and Eliza's houses from the point of view of someone who surveyed them and surveyed the coast in 1850 is pretty amazing. I think resilience has multiple meanings when it comes to the Freeman houses, both of the houses and their stories. You know, resilience of a people, resilience of women, resilience of a community, as well as this concept of weather and climate change. So what a wonderful idea <laughs> the name of a, of a program to be in one of the houses. I know you want to have your ribbon cutting in 2024, but how can people find out more and how can they assist you? Well, if people would like to um, find out more, their best bet is to go to our website, www.freemancenterbpt.org and sign up for information and we'll reach out to you. That's great. I want to thank you both for being on the podcast today. There'll be links to all, everything that was mentioned today in our show notes. And thank you again for coming today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. I want to thank my guests today. Their websites are on this episode's show notes at gradingthenutmeg.lipson.com. To learn more about our Connecticut History Game Changers, get your copy of the Fall 2022 issue of Connecticut Explored at ctexplore.org. This episode was produced by Mary Donahue for Connecticut Explored and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan at High Wattage Media. Please join us again for the next episode of Grading the Nutmeg. This is Mary Donahue for Connecticut Explored.